Adam, do you have anything to say about uh, someone else editing the podcast? Yeah, that's uh, that's the reason Trevor does it. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I edit some episodes and I've offered, yeah. but Adam generally edits the episodes. Trevor's been been helping out a lot more recently. We've been getting couples therapy and. and <laughs> So if you're if you're gonna be nice to one of the co-hosts of Ghost Party Radio, it would be Adam because he'll be the one editing what you're saying and what you're not saying. Oh, right. thank you, Adam. Welcome, everyone, to episode number 25 of Ghost Party Radio, an in-depth and very serious exploration into the world of genre film, hosted by two small-time cowards. I'm Adam Cervantes Wagner, and allow me to introduce my co-host, Airhead, a.k.a. Trevor Dillon. <laughs> okay, no, so what did, what's the roast that uh, you think I thought that you were going to give me? Uh, something about Morning Razor. <laughs> no, uh, I thought you were going to say he puts the bite in Cenobite. <laughs> That's pretty nerdy. I don't know. What? It's. Uh, I mean, I thought you would just start the, the show on a fat joke. Uh, it's a morning record, Adam. Let the listeners know. It is 9.30 a.m. on the Pacific <laughs> Coast right now. Yeah, I really don't get this whole morning thing. It's overrated. I mean, we'll get into it, and I'll roast you continually throughout the episode, but you truly have never been up this early in your life, have you? No, I haven't, I, and I don't understand what's going on. There's a lot of more, lot more people up in the courtyard than normal. <laughs> You're looking at, hey, you have a new apartment, and we don't typically get into your uh, personal life on the show, but I, I heard you move recently. Yeah, I live here in downtown, uh, which you haven't been over yet, but uh, we got to do a movie night one of these nights. I've got a uh, very cool entertainment system going here. Nice. Yeah, you're ready to have people over at your house. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about that. I'm sure I'll be the very, very first invite. Uh, let's. Uh, do we have any listener reviews, Trevor? Uh, Adam, we do not have any listener reviews for the second episode in a row. This is our what? 25th episode, Adam. They've given up. After episode 23, they just gave up. You know, I hear that uh, we're really big on Spotify. Yeah, yeah, and unfortunately you cannot leave any reviews on Spotify, so we must be huge on Spotify. But Adam, I heard that you had a, a personal friend reach out to you with a review of the show. I, I did, and you know what? She texted me uh, literally like 10 minutes ago, uh, and she said, quote, I only listened to the first half of the best of 2020 episodes so far, but I have a beef with Trevor, don't we all? <laughs> Uh, she goes on to say, I'm glad he enjoyed Hubie Halloween, but it was a terrible movie. My roommate and I couldn't even finish it because we couldn't understand a word Sandler was saying, and the plot was barely existent. Um, very valid review. I disagree wholeheartedly, of course. Big fan of Hubie Halloween here. Never mind number 10 movie of 2020. But the only thing that I don't um, actually believe about that review is that They've only listened to half of the 2020 episodes so far. I know they're done listening to it. They're not going back to that episode. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. You know, I, it, it makes sense that, uh, that Adam Sandler was hard to understand considering he was vomiting the whole time. <laughs> I mean, listen, it's a classic Adam Sandler uh, performance. I thought he was extremely committed. I think he won the Independent Spirit Award for it. Uh, but anyways, uh, we have a great guest today, Adam. Please go ahead and introduce her. 
Of course, she is a freelance film journalist whose work you might have seen in Daily Grindhouse, Rue Morgue, and Valingo, and also a co-host on the Losers Club podcast, a show all about the works of Stephen King. It's Rachel Reeves. How are you doing, Rachel? Hey, guys. I am so thrilled to be here, bright and early. Got my coffee, ready to talk about Hellraiser and Pinhead. This is just the best way to start the day. Oh, yeah, we're talking about Hellraiser today. I think we haven't really uh, mentioned that yet. (laughs) Uh, Spoiler alert, it's Hellraiser. (laughs) Rachel, there's a rumor going around that you're in the future. I'm in the future. I am in what's called the mountain time zone. I am in Boise, Idaho. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. Rachel has the the distinct uh, advantage of being one hour ahead of Adam and I, so it is 10.30 a.m. there, so literally in the middle of the day compared to where we are. I'm jealous. Uh, Rachel, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, We met uh, a few, uh, gosh, a few years back, I guess, when uh, one of my short films got into the Idaho um, Horror Film Festival, which I had an excellent time at. Um, And uh, I'm a big fan of your writing, and uh, I saw that you uh, just recently... Uh, joined the show uh, The Losers Club, which I listened to, which is so surreal. I was like, I know that. I know, Rachel. Um, Tell us a little bit about The Losers Club. Yeah, so The Losers Club podcast, they've been around since 2017. They're just the greatest group of constant listeners. They just dive in and analyze Stephen King works in the most fun and incredible way. I love them so much. And uh, I only joined the podcast about six months ago. I had guessed it on a few ones, and I guess, you know, they had an opening, and well, you know, I'm a loser at heart, so I just fit right in with them, (laughs) and it's been a blast, and I'm so honored to be a part of that, and they've had a killer last couple weeks. We just joined the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, which is huge, and we just won the Silver Bolo on Joe Bob, and then Stephen King tweeted about us which is just mind-blowing so it's been a crazy month and to be honest i feel like i got in at the right time (laughs) yeah the timing of you joining that podcast and everything that's happened is so crazy and uh, i know you um you're obviously a huge uh, horror head and genre head in general and um adam it's gonna sound like we're speaking gibberish right over adam's head but uh can you explain what the joe bob briggs uh silver bolo award is to him because he truly is out he has no idea what we're talking about (laughs) Yeah, so so every uh, so the last drive-in on Shutter, so every episode that they they air, they pick um, an award for just somebody in the horror community who they feel like is doing rad stuff. And yeah, two weeks ago, um, it was the the Losers Club, which is just so wonderful. It's you know an honor to be mentioned, and that's such a great platform. And Darcy and Joe Bob really use that platform to try to highlight and connect the horror community in really unprecedented ways so it means so much to us for sure whoa that's awesome congratulations rachel um thanks i can't take all the credit i feel so bad like because you know they've all the other losers have been doing this for so long that it's really they've built up this community of stephen king fans and constant readers and constant listeners and so you know all the credit to them but i'm just so thrilled to be a part of the new crew for sure well, you're only uh, as good as your co-host, um, which is why uh, <laughs> recently we want to announce that we recently um, did not get any reviews to reading the show. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Uh, we're actually a uh, really impressive podcast, too, Rachel. We uh, are on our... Uh, did I already mention that we're on our 25th episode on air? You know Am what? I already... You... 
I'm he repeating did. material already uh, nine minutes into the show. You know, every you got to start somewhere, right? Like, that's the hardest part. Like, honestly, like whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's writing or podcasting or, you know, creating a film, like just starting is the hardest part. So you guys, you're 25 episodes in. So that's that's huge. Like the ball is rolling. This is just the beginning for you. Thank you. Uh, We're never going to get a bowl, though, though. Um, you, you don't you know you don't know that never say never <laughs> uh quick question trevor to put you on the spot how many stephen king books have you read stephen king books yeah uh, oh i get this because you said ever me heard up of on it? the matongo episode as a as a as a proud non-reader which is not the case uh stephen king and michael Crichton are easily my two favorite authors because i find them so readable uh mm-hmm. there's probably there's probably a, a correspondence there with how many movies have been made of those two writers works <laughs> um uh, I don't know. Probably read four Stephen King books of the five million he's written. How about you, Adam? How many? Adam, you've never read a book in your life. <laughs> I've read one Stephen King book. I'll let you two guess. One guess. Uh, Rachel, go first. What? Do, which one do you think that he's read? Um, I'm gonna guess one of the more popular ones. So, oh man, I'm gonna go with The Shining. Nice, uh, Trevor. Um, you're a bona fide clown, so probably it. <laughs> it was on writing. Oh wow! Okay, <laughs> that's that awesome. Such an though. Adam answer. Oh my god. <laughs> so you're you're gonna so wait. Let me get this straight. You're gonna read a book about writing advice from a writer you've never read. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Anyway, <laughs> Rachel. <laughs> What is your favorite genre of cinema? <laughs> My favorite genre of cinema. This is such a loaded question, you guys. Um, I it mean, I love horror. It was delivered completely robotically by Adam. What's your favorite <laughs> genre of cinema? It's like, yeah, he, this, this dude has checked out 25 episodes of this podcast for sure. <laughs> uh, my favorite genre is horror. However, I'd say action and sci-fi are very close tied in second place and um, I particularly love when those genres get mixed up together I love you know horror action and sci-fi horror and any combination of those three I think is wonderful but yeah yeah we love uh, genre blending on this podcast it's like one something that we've learned over the two series that we've done already is that um, I always bring up the quote that Bong Joon-ho says where everyone's like how do you blend all these genres so successfully he was like i don't really think about it it's just like this is like the type of movie i want to make so um although this podcast is basically about breaking down genres by their qualities um i really we do prefer like a, a nice mixing of them yeah no totally and it it really i think it highlights that you know what makes genre it in a weird way it almost highlights that more because you can pick out those elements like oh these are horror elements these are sci-fi elements but it, it opens the door for what you're able to do and the potential for what can be done by blending the genres. It's I, I feel like there's a lot of creative freedom that you can find there. Well, Rachel, as you know, we're talking creature features on this series. And uh, I just wanted to know, what's your history with creature features on films? Do you have any favorites uh, other than, uh, you know, I, I know we had discussed talking about Rawhead Rex on the show today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, uh, I said, you know what? I, we had watched Rawhide Rex, actually, Adam and I, so you did expose us to that film, so thank you. But You're I welcome. figured um, Adam already had a Clive Barker pick, so I figured maybe you might be a fan of Hellraiser. So thank you again for taking uh, the time to talk to us for Adam's pick. But uh, do you have any other favorite creature features? 
I do. So yeah, my history with them, I, I didn't grow up watching a lot of horror, actually. I grew up watching a lot of action films. And so my history with them is actually more in that genre. But I still think they still count. So like I grew up loving Predator and Terminator, RoboCop, like those kind of I, I, I think you could make an argument that those are creature features, in, especially, I mean, Predator, duh. But like Terminator and RoboCop, I think, still have a lot of those elements there. So that's more my history. But some of my favorites that I have come to discover a little bit later in life, uh, starting in my teenage years, that's when I really started to get into horror stuff. Um, I love Lake Placid. I love the 80s blob. And um, of course, being a Stephen King fan, I love The Mist. Cujo, Christine, I think you can argue is a creature feature in a way. Probably get some pushback on that, but I think there's an argument to be made. And then I also really love um, like aquatic horror. So like Leviathan and Deep Rising, those are totally rad creature features as well. And Alien, I mean, come on, Alien. <laughs> yeah, aquatic horror is really interesting. We have a wheel that we spin with a hundred genres on it. And if we don't have aquatic horror on there, Adam, should I add that? I think that would be a really fun series. Absolutely. I think we watched probably already the king of aquatic horror, right? Uh, you'll have to refresh my memory. Yeah, uh, Star Wars Episode Two. Wait, that, that, wait, that's the joke you set up was the, so that you could say it's Star Wars Episode Two. No, well, the real two. one is a uh, creature from the Black Lagoon. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, okay, sorry. Uh, yes, I, I'd forgotten that we had watched Creature from the Black Lagoon. Um, I would. I mean, that's a great underwater horror movie, but. I, I, I don't know. I would say maybe uh, Steve, I'm say Stephen King. Michael Crichton's Sphere starring Dustin Hoffman and Samuel L. Jackson, that famous bomb. That's a great one. But, I love uh, yeah, that one. It, it is, I was just talking uh, about that movie the other day, and it, it actually is very, very creepy, and the book is fantastic. Again, I read books, Adam. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's convenient that all the books you read are also movies good roast i already mentioned that i know just in case we try to test you you're gonna know the plot pretty well huh that's true that's true like uh and there's there's books like congo that i where i definitely watched the movie and then read the book afterwards so by the definitely. way self self-proclaimed stephen king fan over here didn't know what cujo was at the beginning of this season no oh, wow. i knew i knew what it was i just haven't seen it and i was surprised to see it on a list of top 10 creature features of all time like, uh-huh. Roll the clip. Mentioning... <laughs> yeah, yeah, all right. They're gonna, we're gonna edit in the clip of me being correct here. Uh, and Ra- <laughs> Ra- Rachel, are you a Cujo fan? Because I, I mean, Stephen King creature feature. Uh, I don't know. I didn't hear you mention it. Oh yeah, she no, mentioned I, it. I mentioned it, and I do. So I put off watching and reading Cujo for a really long time, just because like I'm, I'm very much a dog person, and so I'm very sensitive to like right. anything that like you know, you know, if the dog dies, like it's like that's a big deal um and of course obviously it's all about this dog like attacking these people and i was like i just don't know i really just like it didn't it put me off a little bit but then you see it and i read the book and it's so much more than that and you know stephen king has such a beautiful way of just writing and creating these fantastical (laughs) terrifying stories so yeah i love i love cooge we're a big fan. We're big cooge heads at the at the, uh, the Losers Club podcast. So lots of cooge love there. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm a cat person, so I, I had no problem with uh, taking those in. So you need to watch Pet Cemetery then. You're a big cat person. I don't know if I could. I, I can't watch <laughs> the scene in uh, 
Grand Budapest Hotel where Willem Dafoe throws the cat out the window. Grand Budapest Hotel is the scariest movie Adam's ever seen. Yeah. You know, but Pet Cemetery. I mean, the cat. I mean, he comes back. So I don't. I. I, I actually think that scene in Grand Budapest is harsher than Pet Cemetery. Okay, maybe I'll check it out. I've actually never read a book myself, so I. I don't know. Yeah. Adam, Adam, we need to stop our gotcha journal uh, journalist style on this podcast because I tried saying Rachel didn't say Cujo, and then both of you immediately said, no, she, she said that. I did. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's proof you don't actually <laughs> listen to the guests we have on the show. Oh, boy. Am I, am I going to be the one who has to start pulling out the, oh, it's nine o'clock excuses. <laughs> um, anyway, let's get into it. We have a, a very special movie, too, Hellraiser, as previously mentioned. Um, Trevor, you, give us the skinny. Um. Uh. Actually, there's one more question that we have to get to before oh, we get to Hellraiser. <laughs> this is the second episode in a row, Rachel, where we've literally just been crushing each other on the format of the show because uh, one or two of us cannot read the rubric we have very simply written down. Um, and it is a serious question, and it needs to be asked. Uh, and I didn't prep you for it, Rachel. And I again, I'm going right back to the gotcha style of uh, podcasting here. But we all know creatures like to eat, Adam. But, Rachel, what's your favorite movie snack? So, this is kind of a new one for me. My friend my friend Taylor, who you know, actually showed this to me. So what you do is you take popcorn, and then you get peanut M&Ms, and you dump it in the popcorn. And I can't believe I went so many years not knowing or trying out this combination, but I'm so grateful for Taylor for showing it to me. Uh, sh- shout out to you, Taylor, because... It's amazing. So that has become one of my favorite go-tos. Yeah, you, you got to get the mix. It's all about the mix. Adam, there's a bombshell that I'm about to drop. Uh, you have not asked me what my favorite movie snack is throughout me asking this to all the guests, even though I have asked you multiple times. My favorite movie snack is exactly what Rachel just said. Popcorn with peanut M&Ms. That is absolutely the best movie snack. Sweet and salty. What are your thoughts? Mm-hmm. Uh, don't people accuse you of stealing the scores that guests say? <laughs> yeah, I actually come into these shows with zero original ideas in my mind, and then I just ape everything that I hear. <laughs> uh, that's a good. That's a good snack, especially for the horror genre, because because it's sort of a Frankenstein monsters esque type of snack isn't it that's a good way of looking at it. i like that i like that <laughs> yeah interpretation uh, very, very much a straight line from popcorn <laughs> with m&ms in it to frankenstein mm-hmm. all right adam let's get to the skinny of hellraiser G- give it to me baby <laughs> all right uh what we do here is i lazily pull up letterbox and i just read what it says in front of me so this is from 1987 like i mentioned directed by clive barker uh has one of the great taglines of all time he'll tear your soul apart uh, an unfaithful wife encounters the zombie of her dead lover while the demonic Cenobites are pursuing him after he escaped from their sadomasochistic underworld. Wow, I didn't trip over any of those big words. Wow. Uh, this has a 3.5 on Letterboxd, and right now I'm going to read a couple of reviews from friends of the show, listeners of the show. Um, listener of the show, David Sims, of course, the co-host of a much, much, much more popular podcast called Blank Check. Uh, he says, Blowing. I don't know how I feel about these Cenobites, but they might be a good hang if you get a couple beers in them. Um, yeah, accurate. 
Yeah, uh, that was literally a take that I was going to say for later on the episode, but uh, I think that's an, an excellent take on the Cenobites, but uh, we have a lot of context to get to before we get to that. All right, and our second review comes from listener of the show, fan of the show, past guest of the show, Kevin Cookman, and he gave it three and a half stars. He says, it's startlingly grim, but filled to the brim with goopy makeup effects. Hellraiser barely succeeds in balancing the horror with the nonsensical. Ooh, so you got two completely different reviews there. I noticed you skipped over the hard words on that one. Yeah, I, I couldn't get to them. I really couldn't. Um, Rachel, let's start where we usually do with these movies. Uh, what is your history with Hellraiser? I know um, Adam obviously picked this movie out of the blue at the beginning of in the intro to Creature Feature series, but um, I understand possibly that you are a fan. What's your history with it? Yeah, no, I, I, I'm a big fan of this movie, and... So like I kind of briefly mentioned earlier, I got into horror a little bit late. I kind of started diving into it when I was in high school because my parents wouldn't let me watch scary movies growing up. So I had to get into them on my own. And I started with the kind of the classics, the slashers. And when I saw Hellraiser, I think I was probably like 20, so a little bit later. And I hadn't seen anything like it. Like I was so just kind of you know marking the classics off my list and but I hadn't seen anything quite like Hellraiser so it kind of blew my mind to be honest and I revisit it every few years and it's still just so great and I'm really excited to talk about it because I think that there's so many really interesting cool things about Hellraiser that make it a classic and make it just completely stand you know stand in a class of its own Have you uh, checked out the, like, seven or eight sequels? So, I haven't. I just recently purchased the Hellraiser, the Arrow, Hellraiser 2 Blu-ray because I need to do this. I was actually kind of getting prepped for this podcast, realized, like, I haven't seen any of the other eight bazillion sequels. And I know that there's a lot of mixed reviews about the quality, Mm-hmm. But I still feel like, what, like, what am I doing? I gotta, I, I gotta just, I gotta do it. So yeah, I'll probably start here pretty soon. <laughs> oh, nice. I guess uh, well, you can have Trevor and I over sometime. We'll do a movie night. Yeah, sure. I guess it'll depend on what we thought of this film, won't it, Adam? Uh, so Adam picked this movie simply because it was streaming on Criterion Channel. He thought that it would give him <laughs> some sort of cred in the art house world. How dare you! <laughs> Um, I think it is really cool that this movie is streaming on Criterion. Um, I'll just kind of dive headfirst into my contacts with the movie. Um, I know Adam is the podcast resident coward, but um, I... Okay, well, I've never seen this movie. Last night, watching this, was the first time I watched Hellraiser. Oh, damn. Yeah. I'm so excited right now. (laughs) I know. And reading that plot that I just read on Letterboxd was the first time I had ever read that plot. And while I was saying all those big words, it's very funny that that plot would mean absolutely nothing to someone who hasn't seen Hellraiser mm-hmm. and or the sequels or knows any of the, the you know, the, the legend of Hellraiser. So I, I think it's really funny how outwardly they're like, yeah, it's like the sadomasochistic realm or the Cenobites live and blah, 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 blah. But um, the reason I had never seen this movie is because the VHS cover like in Blockbuster used to scare me so badly that I was just like, I'm never going to watch this movie. Like it still scares me. Like pinhead on the cover is very scary. Adam, 
Can you relate to this in any way? Do you even know what like a blockbuster is? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I, I was thinking about that the other day. I like the idea of how when we were younger, we would like create these stories in our head just based on this fantastical artwork. I remember, I think, I think Gremlins was one for me that used to freak me out just based on, on what it was, uh, was on the cover there. But it's so cool. And I kind of miss that, that childhood nostalgia type of thing where we we had to sort of create our own stories and they were always just terrifying you know i mean now that now we can watch a movie a horror movie especially and we're not we know what we're getting into right it's not going to be like too scary that we have a heart attack but back in the day it was just all unknown territory we were all just young little punks afraid of the world and i kind of missed that Rachel, are there any VHS covers that stand out in your memory from uh, being a child that really scared you or maybe even scared you off from watching the movie? I don't know that I was ever really, like, scared off from watching any, but I do have, like, really... So part of the reason I got into horror was because of VHS covers, but it was kind of more, like, as a young teenager, it was more because of like I mean the sex appeal of them to be honest so like I I kind of got into horror because of like scream and disturbing behavior and the faculty like these young like hot casts on the cover and they all were kind of the same right like it's all like this group shot with like a weird fade like blending them all together right so like I have such vivid memories of like seeing those on the shelf and being like oh yeah like I want to watch this like cruel intentions like that looks dangerous (laughs) yeah so I really like that was kind of like how I got into it because yeah I I grew up in a very conservative household so I wasn't really like allowed to watch any of the other ones so it was always kind of like horror was always something really appealing because of that and then as I did get a little bit older and I did have the freedom to kind of just watch whatever yeah it was definitely the that 90s kind of horror that got me into it with their yeah hot casts and enticing covers so what you're uh what you're saying is that you would be the one messing with the puzzle box if you had the chance probably yeah i'd be like "Ooh, what is this like (laughs) yeah (laughs) and then then i would find out (laughs) The Child's Play uh, VHS covers used to scare me so, so badly. But now when I look at them, I just appreciate them. Like, as an adult of, like, oh, these covers are so cool. Like, they make this movie look so good and so scary. But, um, Adam, are you familiar with the... um, the cover of Jack Frost. Rachel, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, well, I already ruined the joke because I asked Adam if he was if he knew what it was. But I was going to say, that's like the type of stuff that would probably sp- scare Adam out of the blockbuster. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what I... Uh, God, I... Um, I think it's, it's so different now, you know, as I was saying. Like, I'm going to put on Child's Play nowadays. It's not going to scare me at all. Like, Hellraiser didn't really scare me. But back then, oh, I miss that. It's like, it's also that feeling of when we were younger, you know, and getting away with things that we weren't supposed to be doing, watching TV shows late at night or, or looking at some website. I don't know what your history is, Trevor. Um, Jesus but, Christ. But just that feeling of, <laughs> of fear of, of knowing we're doing something we shouldn't. And I think that was sort of encompassed by seeing those those uh, horror VHS covers because it was like a glimpse at it's something beyond uh, what we could comprehend, and it was scary. Uh, so, Adam, have you seen this film before? 
I have not, no. Um, I had been hearing about it recently. I, I know that there's a lot of big fanboys out there, especially of the, of the uh, lore, which I know gets explored more in the sequels. Uh, yeah, Hellraiser fans are really cool. We uh, we did a double feature of the first one and second one at the theater a couple of years ago, and we had uh, the gentleman who does the score, the awesome score for this movie, out uh, to, to you know do a Q&A afterwards. And then we did a stream of it uh, during the pandemic, and we had um, Heidi Gardner, who's like one of my favorite people on SNL right now. She was in the stream because she's like just so, a huge Hellraiser fan, which I thought was so cool. Um, so yeah, Hellraiser fans are definitely out there, and they exist, but... Um, Adam, I lit the candles last night. You know that I really, when I really want to get into a movie, I light some candles. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a completely empty stomach just in case, you know, just in case <laughs> this movie made me throw up. And I genuinely, you sit down and you say like, we don't have to worry about movies being so scary anymore that we're like going to have a heart. But this is like the one movie in my life that I have avoided because I, I had no idea what it was about. Um, and I was just like, is this movie going to be too much for me? Because I've seen movies like uh, recently there was a film that came out called The Void where mm-hmm. there was a lot of Clive Barker-esque like visions of hell in that movie. And in that movie, it was almost too much for me. Like I was just like, oh, I, I think this is like too gross. So we'll just kind of get into the movie. But when at the beginning, I believe it's Pinhead, when he's picking up pieces of the guy's face, I was like, <laughs> oh, if this movie keeps at this pace with all of these body parts just strewn around this room, like, this movie is going to be too much for me. I felt like I was the the Larry character when he cut his hand on the nail and he kept saying, I'm going to puke, I'm going to faint. Yeah, by the way, uh, it takes three men to barely move a mattress up the stairs. Yeah, Adam, I was going to say, you just moved into an apartment, so did you find this movie relatable? I, I was just thinking about that. I single-handedly moved my mattress up four floors. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, of course, uh, Clive Barker's directorial debut. Um, I'm, I mean, we'll just talk, we just basically talk in general swaths about the movie, Rachel, but I... Sure. I I I just I thought it was so like it was like a, if my mom saw me watching this movie like with how like it was just so sexual and like I had no idea that's what this movie was about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so specific. Um, I think my like overall review of it before we get into the little details is that this is a good movie. It's a very good debut horror film. I just don't know if it's for me. Like like it's so like it's just so like there are parts that are so disgusting. But then, like, when we got to know, I don't want to offend anybody, but the Cenobites that I've been scared of forever, like, the second time that I saw them, I was like, these guys are, like, kind of cool. I, like, kind of get why people like watching the sequels and spending more time with the Cenobites. Like, Pinhead immediately became not as scary to me, and I was like, this guy kind of rocks. Oh, for sure. And that's what, like is what what I love about Hellraiser so much because if you think about it in context of like what was happening at the time right so it came out in 87 and you know all the the big the big horror guys you've got Freddy you've got Jason you've got Michael like those had developed a really specific really popular scene right so you've got these slashers and there was a whole wake of slashers coming around after that but then what that did, like the success of those films, it really opened the doors in the later 80s and going into the 90s for like what horror could do. Because horror was popular at the time, I think it really allowed wilder stories like this to get made. 
So like in 97, yeah, you had a lot of similar, you know, slashers still coming out, some cheaper ones like you had. I love how many blood movies there were in 87. I made a list here. So you've got Blood Diner, Blood Frenzy, Blood Harvest, Blood Hook, Blood Rage, Bloody New Year. There's there's even more. There's a lot of blood movies. <laughs> but then you also had Lost Boys. You had Monster Squad. You had Near Dark. You had Opera. You had Creep Show 2. So like what horror was doing mainstream-wise was really opening up. And then you've got Hellraiser. <laughs> so it's just wild to me that this came out and that Clive Barker himself was able to direct it and really bring his vision to life yeah like the Cenobites and Pinhead are just next level and there's nothing really I don't think that you can really compare it to now I might be missing something but they're just so unique and so wild and it's just I think it's just amazing that this film got made <laughs> Yeah, I really like the idea of like uh, the space posse hanging out and going around, especially uh, when you look at the guy with sunglasses on. Um, <laughs> it just They all got their own little personality, which is fun. Um, but I think you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it does seem like only based on this movie that maybe Clive Barker is a little bit of an incel. What? No, I don't agree with that. I don't okay. think he's an incel. So Clive Barker... I mean, he's gay, and I I think that that, you know, there, it, what's really interesting to me about this film is there's a couple different queer readings that, that I've heard. Yeah, you know, I, was, some... I was hoping that we would get into this, I, and I was hoping that having someone as good as you on the podcast would explain some of these theories. Sure, sure. Yeah, so there's a, you know, there's a really empowering side to Hellraiser, and a lot of, like, the costume and things uh, were, were inspired by, like, piercing culture and some of the underground stuff that was happening at the time, and the S&M and BDSM communities and stuff that Clive was... I don't. I. I mean, I don't honestly know like how much he like participated or frequented or whatever. But he was interested in them, and bringing that into the film can be a really empowering thing. There, you know, there's no kink shaming in Hellraiser, and I think that that bleeds into Hellraiser and their costumes and the pain and pleasure mixing. But then I've also heard that there's some people that kind of read it in sort of a negative way and you know that everything's open to interpretation and it, it's just interesting to me that some people find it they find power in hellraiser and see it as a positive perspective on that culture and then there are others in the queer community that actually find it kind of negative and how it kind of paints a picture that like oh this is queer culture but you know everything's open to interpretation i personally find a lot of power in it and I also think that it goes on beyond just queer culture and queer coded stuff and I think that the Cenobites and Pinhead and all of that can actually just be representative of any sort of vice any sort of addiction that you maybe take a little too far and how it has power over you it could be alcoholism it could be drugs it could be sex it could be whatever I think that there's a lot of room there well, I, I like that exploration that it sort of delved into, uh, as Trevor was saying, like, I really didn't expect the movie to go off in that direction. And I think that's mm -hmm. one thing that makes it unique. Um, what, what the, the intel angle that I'm coming from is the fact that we have this unfaithful woman who's really bringing this trouble down into the house and destroying men as she's, you know, being her, her uh, devilish ways and whatnot. 
And I think that's where a lot of the queer coding comes in. Like a lot of people read that. So what she, the fact that it is men that Frank needs to feed off of, right? Mm -hmm. So I've heard lots of ideas about like Frank is actually, I mean, obviously he's an explorer of sexual fantasies and experiences, right? Mm -hmm. So the fact that she has to bring men to him, I've heard you know, some people talk about how they've read that as being Frank having, you know, a repressed homosexual side and the fact that he has to feed off these men and you see his fingers go in and there's actual penetration happening there, that that can be kind of queer coded as, you know, a homosexual act. So I don't know. There's I it's it, that's what I love about horror films. And that's what I love about Hellraiser. There's so many different ways to read it. I've never heard of it being like an incel angle, but I totally see where you're coming from. Yeah, that she's like destroying these men, right? And I've never thought about it that way. I always thought about it as more like she has kind of like a toxic relationship with Frank and she's going to do anything she can, even if it's like something she doesn't want to do, but she somehow feels like she has to. So it's interesting. You can can tear them apart you can tear these movies apart so now i want to bring on a new segment of the show trevor uh it's called blood to flesh ratio uh okay so we're not doing who would you rather marry uh we will get to that actually (laughs) i knew we would i knew (laughs) uh rachel sorry to 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 explain that adam once every five episodes will just run out of material and just say uh uh who would you rather marry (laughs) in this movie Oh, interesting. This is a it's a very precisely uh pinpointed question, but let's get to that one. Yeah. Rachel, if mm-hmm. you had to pick someone from this movie, who would you marry? <laughs> you actually asked the question. You know, I mean, Kirsty, Ashley Lawrence, the, the our final girl. She's I mean, she's one of the greatest final girls ever. She's spunky. She doesn't take any shit, you know, like she never hesitates my favorite thing she does is at the very end when like she's with the boyfriend or whatever he's like he like tries to grab the box from her like he knows more than she does like how to close (laughs) this box right and she just like basically elbows him in the chest and is just like fuck off like i got this uh so yeah i I would marry kirsty because you know she seems like a very powerful capable independent woman i like it Oh my god, that is such a perfect answer because I wasn't sure if um, Ashley Lawrence is like considered one of the great uh, final girls, but I thought she was a fantastic final girl. I thought she was so good in this. She was the one performance I took away as being extremely interesting. Um, yeah, I, I I love that answer. I think it's great. Um, I, I just wasn't sure how old she was when she shot this. She could have been in the 80s. She could have been 30 or she could have been like 19. I, I have no idea. Okay, I don't actually know how old she is. That's a good question. But I know her character was supposed to be, like, early 20s. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm hoping she's not underage, and but I don't, I don't be, think she was. You'd be marrying her nowadays, so you're fine. Yes, uh, I would still. She's still a total babe. Still and totally would. Rachel would be marrying the character. Let's make this very clear. Yes. <laughs> right, the character at this age. Sorry, Ashley. Adam, uh, don't ask me that question because the, the perfect answer was just given. Come on, Trevor. Um, I thought, I thought Pinhead was very striking. Yes. Very striking. Are you saying yes as in that would be your answer too? No, no. I'm just saying like, yeah, he looks like a good kisser. (laughs) Yeah. No, no, he, um, he was really, so I I did love getting a good, like full look at him. And I, I know we were just talking about Ashley Lawrence's performance. 
I thought one of the most um, absurd scenes of the movie was when she just, like, was able to b- kind of, like, deal with them. Like, when she was like, wait, 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 no. Let me give you him. And I was like, wait, the, the Cenobites just listen to reason? Like, I was like, these guys are so much cooler now that I know that they, like, can have conversations with people and not just <laughs> bring pain, just pure pain. You know, they were like, okay, yeah, I'll do that. That's a, yeah, that's a good, uh, that's a good offering up. Yeah, no, they're totally reasonable. They're, I mean, they're, they're explorers of experience, right? Like, they're not, like, serial killers. They're not, like, crazed, maniacal Michael Myers, you know, like, deeply disturbed individuals. Like, what would be great about marrying Pinhead was, I mean, can you imagine the sort of, like, philosophical conversations you would have with him? Like... (laughs) The things that he would show you, Trevor? Yeah, the sights he would show you. (laughs) Yeah, you know what? My my answer was very shallow, Rachel. Thank you for calling me out on that. This man seemed... This man, or this Cenobite, seemed very worldly and known. He could could definitely tell me a thing or two. Yeah, like, he's seen some shit. Like, it could be a really interesting, like, relationship in a lot of ways. (laughs) Adam, Uh, who would you marry? uh, I think it's an easy one, and I think you already know what I'm going to say. I would marry the bone dragon at the end. Yeah, that was... that. In this movie, that was out of left field. I was like, how is this movie still giving me to the last minute something where I'm like, wait, what is this? Mm-hmm. I, I haven't read the book, but I'm wondering if that's in there. I also, since I haven't seen the sequels, I feel like I'm missing something that maybe like Hellraiser heads really do know. Because I'm almost, I've heard that there's like another character called Leviathan. And I'm wondering if that has something to do with that. I'm really speaking out of pure ignorance here, so I'm not sure. But that might have something to do with the story and the continuing story in Hellraiser, which would be cool. See, and if that shows up in Hellbound, I'm going to like freak out and be like, yes, finally, I understand. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Adam, what's your new segment you want to get to? Oh, yeah. Blood blood to flesh ratio. So uh, what's the deal with the blood to flesh ratio? Am I right? (laughs) I mean, what's the deal? So we get we get uh, the first. He just cuts his hand, and there's there's blood that pours out from his hand, and that forms oh like most of the body of <laughs> yeah. Frank. And then and then he we bring like you know these new men in two men at least that he gets to drink out of, and still that's not enough. He only gets a little bit bigger after that point. What's going on? So that scene, the nail scene. There's a lot to unpack there because at that same time, Julia, dear Julia, is uh, having her flashback, right? She's really remembering her passionate affair with Frank. Mm-hmm. So there, and the way those are intercut, I think was a really clever way of, I mean, it's a really obvious way, but a really clever way of getting around ratings, of emphasizing the pain and pleasure um, aspect to this whole film. And... Yeah, when the blood gets down there, I think that was like, it was like a peak of light, right? Like a way for Frank to get out of the the realm. I don't know what they call it. The Hellraiser realm, right? But yeah, it is interesting that it takes so many more men. I'm not sure. Like once he's there, maybe it gets harder to actually complete the whole process. 
but maybe it was just the blood that like allowed him the little window that he could crawl out of. And maybe because it was family blood. I don't know. By the way, that, yeah. that scene too uh, was probably my favorite scene and really, really stood out for me. I thought it was so cool. I would have watched, it was like a Dr. Manhattan type of thing, but more realistic. I would have watched him fully form for like 20 minutes. Those effects are great. Yeah, the makeup effects and practical effects like hold up so well and they're still so gross. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that that was that was uh, yeah, excruciatingly gross for me. I was like cuz I didn't even know what it was forming, you know, again cuz right. I'd never seen the movie. I was like, what is yeah. this forming? Like wh- why is this a creature that I haven't seen in pop culture? And then it was like it was the guy and I was like this is the plot to this movie. <laughs> like, she has to bring him men. You know what it reminded me of? Because um, this clearly took... I don't think it took place in England, but they clearly were in England. Um, Rawhead Rex. It reminded Rex. me... Uh, yeah, yeah. Of course it reminded me of Rawhead Rex. But um, it reminded me of Under the Skin. Uh, mm. Like, oh, yeah. the, the plot to that film where she just kind of brings people back to her uh, little shack or whatever and then kind of feeds them to the void. Totally. Uh, yeah, that, uh, that's, that's... By the way, that's what I look like getting up in the morning. <laughs> are you making a joke from something we were talking about 90 seconds ago <laughs> no close enough <laughs> <laughs> okay cool Out of clive barker's uh frustration of i believe writing rawhead rex and then seeing the what that turned out to be where he was like mm-hmm. what the fuck is this and he was like you know what i need to direct my next movie um and i think that uh, adam agrees here sometimes where it's like when I watch a movie, I kind of only just want to see per, uh, a specific perspective. And we uh, the word that Rachel kept using earlier was vision. And I truly, this was like, movie is a vision. Like, it feels like a Clive Barker vision. So I don't know why I was so taken aback about, like, how crazy the plot was. Where I was like, wow, I just, I, I can't believe that, like, throughout time, all, all we ever see is, like, pictures of the Cenobites but we I've never heard people talk about the movie I guess because I haven't really been paying attention to the discourse because I haven't seen it but I was like like the sadomasochism and stuff like that and the pain and pleasure thing I was like I just had no idea about any of this um and Clive Barker like he's yeah I think that he's really the only one who could have directed this and have it really emphasize the things that he really wanted to emphasize and from what i've heard there is like there was a lot cut out of it but that's remarkable seeing how much is like left because it's still like so incredible and there's things that i don't think another director maybe would have done like for what i've seen this movie a million times i swear but this time was the first time that i really noticed how um much he focuses on hands and fingertips and there's so much and i think that that really adds to the sensual nature of it and it also like it's very tactile and you've got you know you've got the hands playing with the box you've got julia touching frank's face and vice versa and him grabbing her breast and then you've got frank putting his hands into the guy's neck like there's so much handwork in this movie that it's really kind of a subconscious you know sexual conveyance that you wouldn't necessarily think about and that's something that I don't think another director might have focused on as much but you know Clive obviously Mm -hmm. knew what he wanted and made a point to do that Mm -hmm. and then there's a lot of like star filters used on Julia and Kirsty which I think also really emphasizes their importance in the story these women it gives them a special, you know, glint in their eye. And 
I had never really noticed that before either. And I know that's more of like a, you know, a DP or a cinematographer type thing, but I'm sure it was something that they talked about. These really subtle things that I'm not necessarily sure another director would have come up with. Or just the Cenobites' crazy costumes in general. Like, that's all Clive Barker, I think. Like, his direction. And it's wild. <laughs> yeah. You know, it even, I mean, it uh, it opens with uh, some hand shots. I remember specifically thinking about how dirty Frank's nails are when he's buying the box. And then the other yeah. guy takes the money, too. And his nails are dirty as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's like the first one and it can like watch it again and really think about how much hands and fingers are shown. And it's why it's crazy. Like I never noticed how much it was, but it's like just such a little thing that really just gives this like really just sexy feeling to the whole film. Yeah. Hellraiser, they should have called it a hand finger. <laughs> yep, they should have called it that. <laughs> yeah, that probably would have done better domestically in the box office, Adam. It's a great idea. <laughs> Adam, I'm sitting here with a smile on my face the whole time while you guys are talking about handwork because this is the third time in this series with Creature from the Black Lagoon and Lorelei's Grasp where we have a movie that like puts the emphasis on the hands. It's such a weird thing. Like We didn't know that our bonus category for Creature Feature should have been handwork. Yeah, there you go. Very weird. Um, I haven't said this yet, but doc, uh, they call me Dr. Runtime because I like a short movie, but 93 minutes. Rachel, you mentioned there was some stuff cut out of here, but... For how specific the movie is, it doesn't really feel like something got like like entire plot lines got cut out of it. I could see maybe a lot more time in the Cenobite realm for sure or something. And and I think it was more like I don't think it was like narrative plot stuff. I think it was more specific scenes. Like I know that there was a scene where like uh, in the flashback, like Frank and Julia, their sex scene, like there was some actual like sodomy going on there and some spanking, like some more like hardcore sex stuff that was cut out. And um, so more more sex stuff, I think, than hmm. actually anything else and maybe some gore. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think there was any like whole characters or anything that weren't present. And Rachel, where weird. can we watch these deleted scenes? I don't think they're out there. Oh, another fun fact. So the score for this was originally composed by Coil, a band Coil that Clive Barker knew and really liked and were really instrumental in helping like develop some of the Cenobite stuff because uh, uh, Clive Barker was friends with some of the guys in Coil and they had connections, or not connections, but they kind of introduced him to some of these magazines that were like piercing enthusiast magazines these underground ones that really kind of gave him some ideas for the cenobite design um they had done a whole other soundtrack that was much more in their music vein which had a lot of synths and electronic stuff and was more kind of in line with what you would think of a traditional 80s score and so it's really interesting that uh the studio basically was like mm, no we got this guy, Christopher Young, that we work with that people have actually heard of. So we're going to go with him instead. So that was a big, like, studio change that Clive Barker didn't, like, he didn't choose Christopher Young. But I honestly think Christopher Young's score adds so much to kind of the fantasy element to this film that I hate to say it. Sorry, Coil, but I think that it's a better score. We got a new uh, segment we're premiering on the show called Sorry, Coil. Nice. <laughs> St- um, stuff stuff that got cut out. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> like, 
Well, yeah, Adam and I do love to um, discuss the idea of longer cuts of movies lying around because there's always a longer cut of a movie laying around. But this movie, it's interesting that you say that. Uh, it didn't feel like it, but I can see him cutting out stuff. And it's funny that this movie of all movie has a director that showed some restraint because it feels like there was not a lot of restraint in here. But um, I'm curious to see if he had if he had to cut that out to not get the X rating or if it was just something where he thought uh, maybe it would just be a little more effective if we weren't so you know, at, at 100 miles per hour the whole movie. H-word? Yeah, if we weren't so H-word, if this movie... Uh, Rachel, on the podcast, we don't say horny. We say H-word. Oh, nice. Gotta keep so this it movie, clean. This movie is extremely, extremely H-word. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, we're going to keep talking about the movie, but we're going to move on to our, our rating system. Is that cool, Rachel? Yeah. So to explain it, um, at the beginning of each series, uh, this would be the intro to the Creature Feature series this time, We, uh, Adam and I picked five categories that we thought would make up the ideal Creature Feature. Um, it's bulletproof. If Hellraiser doesn't score well on it, then that means that Hellraiser is not a good Creature Feature. Uh, it's, you know, the scale never lies. So we're going to go through this. Uh, you're going to go first, Rachel, and then Adam goes, and then I typically go last. And it's on a, a scale of 1 to 10. So the very first question that we have for the Creature Feature series is, how cool are the monsters' origins in this film? Monsters' origins. Well, you don't get a whole lot of origin story for the Cenobites. But I, I'm going to use this as an excuse to just consider that their realm, like where they come from physically. Yeah. And wait, what is the... What's the scale? One to five? Like, what are we? Yeah, it's it's, it's one to ten, and I I I'm, oh, one to I'm, ten, reading, sorry. I'm reading this question the same way you are. It's how cool is the monster's origin? Technically, the origin of these monsters is that realm. Okay, perfect. Um, ten out of ten. This realm is Hell yeah. gnarly as fuck, and <laughs> it's like it's this whole other thing. I've never seen anything like it. It's not a place you would think that you would want to go, but apparently all these people are choosing to go there. You know, and yeah, so 10 out of 10. Nice. I'll give it a 9 out of 10. Also gnarly AF, bro, but... Um, <laughs> gnarly AF, wow. Mm-hmm. Look at this Look at this Gen Zer in the chat. <laughs> <laughs> I just wish we could have seen more. I know, Trevor, you're kind of talking about uh, that this isn't your cup of tea of movie. It's a little too gross for you, but I love when a movie gets gross. I, wow. love, I love that stuff. I love the Cronenberg style, um, and I kind of wish there was more. Wow, I, I do not take you for someone who likes when a movie gets gross. Because, like, in the beginning, there's just, like, body parts everywhere. There's blood everywhere. And we're getting, that like, a real – like, the realm just seems like such a horrible place. But I have to be objective here. I guess the question is how cool is the realm? To me, it's not cool at all. But I'm going to be objective, and I'm going to think like a big horror guy here. And I'm going to give it an 8. So this category went 10, 9, 8, which for the Creature Feature series, Rachel, that's an extremely strong start. Yeah. Nice. Uh, w- I like it. If you thought that was gross, Trevor, wait till you see my new apartment. Yeah, for <laughs> real. I'm, I, you know what? I definitely, I, I believe you there for sure. Um, okay, uh, category number two. This is what I call the Adam category because he thought that this would make up a good creature feature. How dumb slash silly are the human characters in Hellraiser? It actually might do pretty well in this. So, okay. It depends on the character, I think. Like Christy? not dumb at all i think she's amazing she doesn't like she gets scared but she never like makes any stupid mistakes like in my mind she makes all the right choices so she gets a 10 out of 10 julia is a bit sadder Mm. i don't think she makes any dumb mistakes i think she's just the victim of a really toxic relationship 
Um, but I think she was dumb in thinking that, you know, Frank wouldn't hurt her. Like Frank's feelings were reciprocal. So I'm going to give her like a five. I think there's a lot of things about Julia that are both sad and maybe some like, you know, blind loyalty kind of things. What's the dad's name? Larry? Larry's the dumbest one (laughs) in this whole thing to me. Larry is completely oblivious to anything that's going on in his own goddamn house. So I think Larry's the big dummy in this movie. And so he gets a three on the intelligence rating, I guess. But the the category is if they're dumb, it's actually a higher score. Oh, okay. So flip it around. Christy, (laughs) Kirstie, zero, (laughs) Julia, five, right in the middle still. And Larry gets like a seven. And oh, Frank. I don't think he's dumb either. I think he's just, well, maybe he is dumb. Maybe he's <laughs> dumb to think that he could handle the Cenobites, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, maybe I'm going to give him, like, a six. Uh, overall, just, uh, how, so it, it, it seems like you're kind of in the middle here with between all of the characters. Are you thinking of, like, a five or a six? Yeah. I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Especially if Christy's the s- outlier. So if you take away her, the rest are just, like, yeah, six. Okay, cool. We'll give it. We'll give it a six, Adam. Uh, yeah, I think you you nailed it there, Rachel. Um, Christy, especially smart. I think we kind of talked about it, but her quick thinking to negotiate with the Cenobites is was a, such a good move. I don't know if I would have thought of that. I loved it, um, but the rest of them pretty hit or miss. Especially Larry, who's just the goofiest nerd-looking white dude that they could cast for this part, um, who actually got cooler once Frank turned into him. <laughs> I'll give it a uh, I'll give it a seven. Uh, I'm giving it a seven as well, Adam. Interesting. Uh, Adam actually can see the scores that I write down. I write them down ahead of time, so he uh, tends to copy. Uh, my I'm not scores. looking at it right now, though. Uh huh. Sure. Um, yeah, you had some strong feelings about the Larry character, huh, Adam? You uh, <laughs> you texted me like, what what did you text me? Uh, yeah, I texted you about what's the deal of this era of horror films casting like the most nerdy-looking, uninspired white dudes as the main characters. Okay, so there's a story behind that. Uh, So, yeah, it was a British production, like you guys said, but since New World did it, they wanted an American actor. And so that's why Larry's American. And so, but he was a big name because he was in Dirty Harry. So, Hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's Clint Eastwood, I thought. That I <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, for a movie for a movie that has a million dollar budget, I mean, yeah, the, if you can get the guy who was in Dirty Harry to star in it, that's not too bad. Also, Adam, uh, lay off on the nerdy, uninspired dudes. Uh, that's our entire fan base. <laughs> uh oh. But he kind of had to be right because all this stuff was going on in his house, so they had to make him just kind of like. And then also make it so that Julia, you could understand why maybe she was attracted to Frank because like this other dude is just so normie that yeah. like Frank, like Frank had that like weird dangerous sex appeal. I mean, if you really liked Larry, if you thought like if it didn't make sense why she would leave him, it, the whole film wouldn't make sense. So you had to That's... have him be just like so generic that it was like, OK, yeah. I can can see why you would want Frank. Yeah, it did start uh, working more as the movie went on, but it, it, it was just at the beginning where it hit me. And then ha- also having seen Rawhead Rex recently, where they, they did mm-hmm. the same thing. They cast like just some unremarkable white dude, you know, to carry the film. 
Yeah. I mean, not every movie can like discover the next so and so. You know, it's just it's just sometimes you got to get some actors. But they're really trying, and Cronenberg does this a lot too, where it's just you know he just finds he plucks one out from the white dude tree. (laughs) All right, all right. Category number three. um, I'm gonna need to be sold on this one, Rachel and Adam. But how sympathetic are the monsters in Hellraiser? Oh, I mean, they are not sympathetic. I don't think like they are they know what they're doing you know what I mean like they are in full control and no remorse so they get a wait so is that a zero they get a zero (laughs) yeah I'll I'll skip right ahead of you Adam this is a classic zero (laughs) the the, the Cenobites are not sympathetic in any way but once again the, the scale never lies I don't know. I'm going to give them a three. I don't think they're, I don't, they don't seem especially malicious, if that makes sense. I do think oh, that no, they, totally. they are kind of like the tour guides, right? And so I, you do feel bad for them a little bit. I don't feel bad because it's like, you don't feel bad for them because it's like they're offering a service and you're choosing to use it. Like it's the person choosing to like call them that's making the mistake like the Cenobites are just like this is what we do like you called us dude so I yeah I don't feel any sympathy for them but at the same time like I don't like hold it against them either but they also they get zapped like they don't want to go back in the puzzle box it seems like you know when he says don't do that I feel a little bit bad. well I think it's because yeah they feel bad I guess because they didn't like achieve their goal they didn't like Right. They wasted their time, kind of. <laughs> she was just a tease. Yeah. That's a decent point, Adam, actually. When they when, when he says don't do that, um, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, maybe we get more of it in the sequels that they actually don't want to be in the other realm. But as it stands right now, it, it feels to me like they you don't you don't get them like getting too much enjoyment out of what they do which would make them extremely unsympathetic. But yeah, I don't I don't find them to be sympathetic. Right. So you're giving it a 3. Yeah, come on. No one wants pins in their head. <laughs> okay. I mean, Pinhead might want that, actually, Adam. Uh, yeah, category number four. How strong of a metaphor are the monsters in this movie? We can make up some points here, I think. I mean, I think it's a strong metaphor. Like like I was saying, I, I, a lot of people just read it as strictly like, you know, BDSM and S&M and kind of sex in general. But I think that it can really be a metaphor for any sort of vice and how you may think that you can control it and keep like pushing that limit of what you're capable of I don't know experiencing (laughs) but sometimes that vice can actually hold the power over you so I think that it's a really strong metaphor and a really um what's the word not evocative but a really effective (laughs) visual representation of that I mean I'm gonna give it like an eight nice yeah i think uh, i think you articulated this really well i was kind of having trouble i guess uh pinpointing it um but yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think yeah i'm gonna give it a, an eight also that's sort of perfect for for what's going on here and something cool i think to see tackled in this horror film yeah, Adam, I was hoping you were looking at the sheet because I had already given it an eight. So we're eights across the board on this one. Um, yeah, horror is not the genre for subtlety. Um, but about halfway through, I was trying to find the metaphor. But Rachel, I think you uh, verbalized it perfectly. I, and um, and you mentioned that 
visually it is a very strong metaphor and it really uh is something that i will not forget so eights across the board uh last category rampage points so uh rachel are you um familiar with the n64 game rampage i am yeah all of our guests have been so far which is so cool that that game must have had such an influence but um (laughs) basically how much damage do these creatures do i mean they don't I mean, large scale, like if you're talking about like toppling buildings and stuff, I mean, zero, really, or like a one. It's really more focused than that. Right. They're they're not just going out and like turning random strangers into sexual deviants and tearing them apart, right? Like they affect the people in their immediate circle, uh, you know, who are utilizing the box. So it's, I mean, a pretty, pretty small rampage, I would say. Yeah, I'm going to give them like a two. A two? Okay. Uh, I'm going to give it a five. Uh, wow. They destroy the house. And. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, they tear a dude apart a couple times at least. So. They tear a family apart. Ew, yeah, that's, I guess that's true. That's the true rampage. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm giving it a three, so I'm kind of in the middle of both of you. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, when we think of rampage, we haven't done a movie yet that's like this, but. Yeah, you think of you think of the game. You think of like entire like like Godzilla, Godzilla versus King Kong, which we watched, uh, yeah. uh, or Kong versus Godzilla, whatever one, whatever order that's in. Um, yeah, there's a lot of rampage points in that movie. So if we're judging it on that scale, I have to go with the three here. Uh, okay, so that's it. That's our. Wait a minute. No, there's a bonus category that Hellraiser might really, really do well with. How big slash scary are the monsters in Hellraiser? These monsters are really scary. Like, I cannot imagine seeing this as a kid. Like, this would have messed me up. It's a good thing I didn't see it till I was older mm-hmm. and a little more desensitized because these costumes are wild. And, you know, they really effectively don't come across as human, I don't think. You know, whereas, like, Michael Myers, yeah, human. Jason, even. Yeah, there's some su- supernatural things going on there, but human. Even Freddy Krueger, I mean, he was a human at one point, but like Cenobites, I don't know what the hell they are. And I think that the costuming and the individual costuming, they're not like just kind of like a universal look that they there could be more of them and you don't know what those are going to look like. It could be anything. Like, I think they're really scary. I'm going to give them, oh boy. I'm going to give them a, I'm going to go wild and say nine. Wow. Um, yeah, I agree. And it's funny because I think having been a kid in the at Blockbuster, had I seen this movie, I think it would have lived up to those horror expectations at the time because this movie is scary with all these visuals. Um, yeah, they're freaky. I love that they all got their own personality. Um, I would give it an eight because uh, I want to see more. <laughs> so this will be my third eight uh, of this film um I, I i'm giving it that i think that it lived up to everything i thought it would be in terms of how scary it was i mean i guess that would have been a 10 like if it was actually as scary as well but you have like the characters like butterball and stuff like that that i think are actually cooler than they are scary yeah, cute like, uh, yeah, like if this bonus was how cool slash scary are the monsters i think the cenobites are just like here's a 10 that's a very easy 10 for me but as it stands, I'm giving it an eight, so that category goes nine, eight, eight. Uh, talk amongst yourself while I add up all of these very, very big numbers. 
I do want to give a shout out to like the chattering one because to me that one is the most <laughs> like terrifying. I do not like that is that one actually makes me like I don't like that. I don't I don't want you next to my face. Yeah. That one's the <laughs> like hardest. Like when he gets to really Yeah, well <laughs> like when it gets like really close to Kirsty's face, it's like that is actually really terrifying. <laughs> like yeah, Butterball, it's kinda like, oh, that's kind of a funny guy. And like um, Pinhead and the you know, the female Cenobite aren't exactly like you know, people pieces of cake either but like i really don't i really don't like that chattering one wait is so butterball is the sunglasses one not the one who's crawling on the walls right yeah i don't know what the one like the the like phallic looking one i don't know what that one's actually called i'm sure it has a name that, yeah that might be their dog but i think i think butterball is actually the scariest one for me just because he <laughs> he looks like such a pervert i hate it he, he looks yeah he looks like he's gonna like eat you or he looks like that like the, the like gluttonous guy from like seven or something yeah. like he's really gonna come after you adam i like that take on butterball like he does look so out of place that you're like wait what has this guy what has this guy done to be a part of this gang yeah for a second you're like wait i think i i know this guy so rachel you've given the film 35 out of 50 how do you feel about that score I feel good. You could give the movie an actual score of what you thought about it. It might be higher than 35, but you were very objective, so thank you. Uh, Adam, you seem to have loved this film. You gave it a 40 out of 50. I'm happy with that, yeah. I think it's a creature feature through and through. I um, Yeah, of course, this was your pick, so it looks like you may have loaded the dice a little bit here, but... No. Um, it does hurt that Rachel and I both gave it a zero and how sympathetic the monsters were, but I, I felt that was very good. Uh, and I've given it a 34 once again in this series. I have given the film the lowest score of the three of us. I don't know how this keeps happening. but So that is a total score of 109, Rachel, which puts this film in second place so far in our Creature Feature series. Adam, this is going to be about four points behind Matongo. How are you feeling about that? I still would like it if Matongo won. I think that'd be a cool winner. Yeah, uh, Rachel, have you heard of the, or have heard or seen the film Matongo? I have not. It is uh, it is on Amazon Prime right now under the name Attack of the Mushroom People, and you must watch it. We really, Whoa. really loved it. We thought it I was mean, so clearly, fun. I mean, clearly, if it's beaten out Hellraiser, like, I gotta see this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's beaten out Hellraiser, Creature from the Black Lagoon, which is so weird that that's not the number one movie so far. Uh, but the scale never lies, so... Um, Rachel, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. We have one more thing we have to do before you get out of here. We need an award in your namesake to give away at the outro to Creature Feature episode. So what is it going to be? The Rachel Reeves Award for... Pain and Pleasure. <laughs> perfect. Uh, honestly, perfect. I, I didn't know if it was going to be blood to flesh ratio or what, but Pain and Pleasure <laughs> is perfect. Okay. Nice. So, uh, so far in this series, we have the Justina Bonilla Award for Best Underwater Scenes, the Miguel Rodriguez Award for Real World Allegory, the Chad Leslie Award for Least Romantic Alien Mating Spot, and now the Rachel Reeves Award for Pain and Pleasure. I love it. I think it's great. Unfortunately, Rachel, if Hellraiser wins an award or multiple awards, you do have to leave me a voice memo on my phone that will play on the outro to create a future episode. <laughs> Sounds so good. we're going to give you more work. Although they're only like 30 seconds, but I have a feeling that Hellraiser is going to walk away with at least a couple of silver ghosties. Cool. Um, do you have anything that you want to plug before we get out of here? Um, nothing specifically. Yeah, you can find me uh, lurking about Rue Morgue pretty regularly. And yeah, you can catch me on the Losers Club podcast from time to time. And we've got a 
stacked schedule this summer coming up with some really cool stuff. So yeah, I encourage everybody to check that out if you are indeed a constant reader. Yeah, everybody, please check out an actual good movie slash book slash media podcast. Adam, <laughs> Adam, anything that you want to plug? Follow me at Projector Fuel on Instagram where I post all the movies I'm watching. And uh, check out my website, Adam J.C. Wagner, which is where I post the movies I'm making. Awesome. And my plug's always Letterboxd at Captain Dills, where I keep a list going of all these films that we're discussing, and I rank them in their own genres. My personals are at Trevor Dills on Instagram and Twitter, and always follow us at Ghost Party Picks on all socials. Adam, you know what I'm going to ask you? I heard a rumor. Are we on Google Podcasts? Trevor, you know what? For the 25th week in a row, we are. We are on, uh, so Rachel, where we learned that there's like two people that somehow follow us on Google Podcasts, and I don't even know how to access Google Podcasts, but I want to give a shout out to those two listeners. Thank you for continuing <laughs> to support us on fr- from the other realm. Um, okay, well, yeah, again, Rachel, thank you so so much for yeah, coming on the show, thank you, uh, and giving us your time early in the morning. Um, I know you're in the future, but it is early in the morning for us, and. Um, <laughs> really appreciate you adam do you have any parting words for our nice guest yeah thank you so much rachel uh if i could have you as a co-host instead of trevor i would oh wow you guys thank you so much it's been so much fun i am thrilled not only that we watched hellraiser together but also that i made you watch rawhead rex so (laughs) that's 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 really the true win here <laughs> that's right i forgot yeah we had definitely watched rawhead rex in anticipation for that and then i was like wait clive barker and it like came together so uh oh, wait, yeah this I was do, a great fit uh, yeah i have a quick question rachel uh yes i had two nicknames in college which do you think is the better one uh hellraiser or rawhead rex oh man you know hellraiser is the cooler one i don't know if i would want to be friends with a guy nicknamed rawhead rex <laughs> <laughs> okay well like i said I had both. (laughs) (laughs) That really adds up. And definitely, uh, I like the idea that Rachel definitely doesn't want to be friends with Adam. Thank you, everybody, (laughs) for listening to Ghost Party Radio. Adam, we have officially raised some hell. You got it. Bye. Jesus wept. Bye. Mm, That's a 10.